0: 1 Kings chapter 3. Let me remind you as we continue on in these early pages of the book of Kings that the Lord is not so much concerned here with precise history as he is with what one commentator called the theology of history. That is the study of God through history, the understanding of God, and the pursuit of God through these historical truths and facts. Now, this is history. Things that we're going to read really happened, they're truth. But the point is not, again, to memorize dates and names and times and to get a lot of book knowledge into our heads. The point is to know God better. When I say that this is a theology of history more than a precise history, it doesn't mean this history is incorrect. But what I mean is that history for history's sake is not the point. His story is the point. Otherwise, we're wasting our time looking back at history at all. The reason behind the writings is coming into a right relationship with our Father God and our Messiah Jesus through His Holy Spirit. Now, I remind you of that because as we begin, the first few verses of chapter 3, they are not necessarily chronological as much as they are theological. Because in the first three verses, we have three precise points as to why Solomon is going to fall apart and turn away from God later in his life. Early on in his rule, at the very beginning, we learn three things about Solomon and the way that he ruled that are problem areas. Beginning in verse 1, it says, Solomon formed a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her to the city of David until he had finished building his own house, and the house of the Lord, and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were still sacrificing on the high places because there was no house built for the name of the Lord until those days. Now Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David, except he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. Three problem areas. In verse 1, the problem area is political expediency over spiritual longevity. Political expediency over spiritual longevity. If you're taking notes, you can jot that down. Political expediency over spiritual longevity. In other words, Solomon gets married to Pharaoh's daughter as a political move. It was a smart move for a king in those days to create a a contract of peace to marry into Pharaoh's household and and to have that connection so the Pharaoh and the people of Egypt wouldn't want to come and, and attack Israel. His own daughter now is married to the king of Israel. So we've got this cross-border peace with Egypt to the south, but it's political expediency over spiritual longevity because in the long run it's marriages like this that will undo Solomon. It will cause Solomon to turn away from God. It's the first of many marriages inviting paganism into his home and his life. 2 Corinthians chapter 6.14, a familiar verse to many of you. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What harmony has Christ with Belial? What has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. And the Lord is not saying that you stay away from unbelievers, because we couldn't stay away from unbelievers and fulfill the great commission of bringing Jesus and the love of Christ to unbelievers however we are not to be bound together with unbelievers bound in such a way that we are tied down to going possibly the direction they're going yoked to them like two oxen yoked together and the unbeliever wants to go away from the Lord well what's going to happen there at best there's going to be tension and strife at worst you are going to be drawn away with the unbeliever Solomon did what was was politically expedient, but it overturned spiritual longevity. Verse 2, we notice that the people are still sacrificing on the high places. The Canaanites worshipped in the highest places possible. Their idea was they'd get at the highest mountains they could and they would create groves of trees there that would surround altars and there they would sacrifice to their pagan idols. And they did it in the high places because they thought the higher up you went on a mountain, the closer you were to the gods. So the high places were scattered all around the land of Canaan and the high places were supposed to be taken out of the land of Canaan. But the second problem we see with Solomon here is public idolatry over influential purity. Public idolatry over influential purity. Solomon is king. He has the greatest influence of anybody in the land of Israel. When David was king, there was a great influence on the land. When the people saw the man after God's own heart, they were drawn in that direction. They were influenced by his rule. Solomon is now in that place, but he does nothing about the public, the widespread public idolatry. He just lets it continue. And though he will eventually build the temple there in Jerusalem, he never does anything to take apart or take down the high places or to discourage the people from running away to those high places for pagan sacrifice and worship. In the book of Deuteronomy chapter 12 verse 2 The Lord said to the people Before they entered the land He said you shall utterly destroy All the high places Where the nations Whom you shall dispossess Serve their gods On the high mountains And on the hills And under every green tree You shall tear down their altars Smash their sacred pillars And burn their asherim with fire You shall cut down The engraved images of their gods And obliterate their name From that place You shall not act like this Toward the Lord your God But you shall seek the Lord at the place which the Lord your God will choose from all your tribes to establish His name there for His dwelling. And there you shall come. And where is that place? It's Jerusalem. It's the place where the temple is going to be built. This is the place that God is establishing for His name. Solomon, when he builds the temple, could have at that point built it, wiping out all the high places and declaring, using his royal influence... To all the people to say, come to Jerusalem, this is where we will meet God, this is where we will worship. He will never do it. Even after he builds the temple, the people will continue to openly visit the high places throughout his entire rule. And this, by the way, will be problematic for every single king of Israel, with one exception, and that's Josiah. Finally, Josiah will come along and destroy the high places. But he's the only one out of all the kings. We mentioned talking about them on Sunday. What is it? From Saul to Zedekiah, some 42 kings, 43 kings. And of all the kings of Israel, one will destroy the high places. And that's toward the end of the, of the reign of Israel when things are weakening. So, number one, Solomon Pursues political expediency over spiritual longevity. Secondly, public idolatry over influential purity. And finally, number three, in verse three, personal compromise over faithful intimacy. Solomon loved the Lord, verse three, walking in the statutes of his father David, except. Except he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. The word except is a dangerous word. I'm involved with my church except when I have other things going on. I follow the Lord I study the Bible every day except when I get busy I I love to worship except when my mind's on other things except is a dangerous word Solomon loved the Lord we're told that right up front he had a heart for Jesus had a heart for God except he also sacrificed and burned incense to pagan idols He was doing both. And this is the problem. We've talked about this before. It wasn't wasn't going after the gods to the exclusion of Jehovah God that was problematic for Israel. It was in addition to. Oh, they believed in God. They looked back on Passover. They looked back at their rescue from Egypt. They believed that God was God. They trusted that He was. But they, in addition to God, served pagan gods as well. And that's the problem that can happen Even in the church today It's that Jesus and mentality Instead of Jesus only mentality Now he's calling us to Jesus only Listen to this verse One of the strongest phrases Strongest things Jesus says in the Bible Luke 14, 26 If anyone comes to me And does not hate his own father and mother and wife And children and brothers and sisters Yes, and even his own life He can't be my disciple Now I looked up the word in the Greek the word hate means hate. That's a strong word. It is the strongest word for hate in the Greek language, and that's what Jesus chooses to say, this is how this is how dramatic your love for me needs to be. So dramatic that when you stack up your love for me against your love for your wife, it is so huge your love for me that as great as your love is for Cheryl, it looks like hate by comparison. That's what he's saying. Draw a contrast that says nothing in your life even comes close to the love you have for Jesus. It's not Jesus and. It's Jesus only. The focus and the sole focus of our lives. God said destroy all those high places. Why? Because He didn't want any opportunity for the people to worship Him and to love Him except. And this is a huge problem as we'll see in Solomon's life. Jesus and versus Jesus only. How about us? In these three areas, are we more interested in expediency, in quick fixes, or in longevity? That is, in the long haul faithfulness to the Lord. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please Him, for he who comes to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. Faith is a long-haul proposition. It is not just for this hour, not just for tomorrow, or the next week or the week after that. It's not just to get you through a rough year. Faith is a lifelong proposition. It's a walk that begins from the moment you accept Jesus and doesn't end until you see Him in heaven speaking the language of faith. Do we prefer, prefer public idolatry to influential purity? What do you mean by that? Well, would I rather fit in, living to let live, not wanting to rock the boat or bother people around me speaking words of truth? Would I rather just kind of keep to myself? See, I think the problem in our country today, especially regarding homosexuality, which we've talked about recently, the problem is that in America, no one has said a word against it. I'm not talking about now, I'm talking about back in the 70s, when the issue first arose. Where was the church? where were people who were standing up saying, This is unacceptable. When it it changed from a dysfunctional disorder in a psychology manual, When they pulled it out and they made it a normal function of life. Where were the voices saying, Hey, wait a minute, wait a minute, there's something wrong here. And so now we have an agenda in this country, And it's one of many, It's It's not the only sin problem that we face and deal with in America today. It's one of many. But the question is, as Christians, are we okay with public idolatry? Are we okay knowing that our friends and neighbors all around us are visiting the high places? No, it's okay, just as long as they don't bother me. As long as I can go to church and do my thing, that's all right. Solomon was living that way. As long as, you know, that's fine. You know, Come to the temple. As long as you come to the temple every now and then and worship there. As long as you pay your taxes, that's cool. Go ahead and go to your high places. Or are we pursuing instead the faithful intimacy? Are we proclaiming life to people by the gospel? Romans 1.16 Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I think Paul would call quietness in the face of sin and evil, I think he would call that shame. Well, I don't want to speak the gospel because I might offend somebody and I might get embarrassed. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And thirdly, is our faith personally compromised by that Jesus and mentality rather than the Jesus only focus? Hebrews 12.2, the verse we should have firmly implanted in our minds, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Constantly looking to and looking at and gazing upon Jesus, Political expediency, public idolatry, personal compromise, these things eroded away as Solomon's love for God until he turns away from the Lord altogether. Now you might ask, well how exactly does this happen? I mean he's a son of David, right? David was not a man of compromise. David was a man of great faith. And you would think at least some of that would rub off on his children. Well we talked about before that David wasn't the greatest father in the world. But there's a much bigger difference between David and Solomon than family upbringing. The big difference is, David, think about his life. He lived most of his life confronted, challenged, and under the gun. Persecuted. David's life was a hard, battleground life that he fought every single day, it seems, to the very end. And the only time when David got in trouble was when it was quiet and peaceful. The rest of the time when he was fighting, when he was running, when he was in caves, he had to trust the Lord. And he did. He had an incredible passionate faith and love for God. By contrast, Solomon lived during the greatest age of peace, prosperity, and property in Israel's entire history. You'll see in the chapter tonight, man, it was eat, drink, and be merry time. Not Mary Kennedy, Mary as in happiness. It was, it was just relax and have fun. Kick back because there's peace. We don't have anything to worry about. We can just party. We can sleep in. You know, go to parties late at night. Hang out with our buds. There's so much prosperity in Israel. Man, you hardly even have to work. This is great. And that's the problem. Peace, prosperity, and property without the intentional rule of righteousness leads to complacency. And David, David wasn't complacent. He didn't have time to be. He he couldn't risk complacency. His life depended on being alert at all times. Solomon... All he had to do was put up his feet and take it all in, as he will do. Well, going on in verse 4, with these things kind of underlining the beginning of Solomon's rule, and they come up throughout his rule. Verse 4, the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there. For that was the great high place. Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. In Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at night. And God said, ask what you wish me to give you. Now this is amazing to me. He goes up to Gibeon and there sacrifices a thousand burnt offerings on the altar at the pagan high place of Gibeon and God appears to him there. Well, that's kind of surprising. When do you think God would wait in Jerusalem until he got back and say, Where would you go? What are you doing? But he doesn't. He meets Solomon there. According to 2 Chronicles chapter 1, verse 3, Though the Ark of the Covenant was in Jerusalem, the tabernacle and the altar were in the high place of Gibeon. They were divided. They weren't together. I mean, things had gotten pretty loose around Israel since the days of Moses and Joshua. The Ark in one place, the tabernacle in another. The bronze altar was up there. But it was placed in that high place of Gibeon. And that's where the people were sacrificing and, and, and both to God and to pagan gods in the same place. Now we can make an assumption here That at this point Solomon's thousand offerings are to the Lord And immediately following this hugely generous offering that he makes The Lord shows up And he speaks to Solomon in a dream Now one question that's been asked is How did the tabernacle get to Gibeon, And why isn't it with the Ark of the Covenant And again the bottom line is Things are just kind of out of control in Israel There's no structure as to where things are supposed to be. But here's the amazing grace of the story. God shows up anyway. The Lord goes and meets Solomon where he is. He doesn't wait until Solomon gets his head screwed on straight back in Jerusalem. He goes to where Solomon is. He meets him there in a dream. He doesn't chastise Solomon. He speaks to Solomon. And the question he asks is absolutely amazing. Ask what you wish me to give you. What do you want, Solomon? You're king now. My servant David is passed on. You're the man. What do you want? What can I do for you? Amazing question. Amazing grace. Of this text, Matthew Henry wrote the following. He said, The Lord graciously overlooked their weaknesses and accepted their services. It is known that Solomon loved the Lord though he burnt incense in the pagan high places. And then Henry writes this, Let not men be more severe than God. You know, and all of our desire to take a stand for the truth, as I was just talking momentarily ago about. And all our, our wish to, to be, you know, firm believers and faithful and not ashamed of the gospel and, and, and outspoken for Jesus Christ in this world, don't ever forget we are called to not be more severe than God. We're called to dispense grace the way God did. And what the Lord shows us here is he goes to Gabeon, to the pagan high place, and shows up in Solomon's dream graciously, lovingly. And he offers to bless him there. Paul said in Romans 2.4, Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? And what's interesting is the next time Solomon offers anything, it's going to be back in Jerusalem. We find Solomon drawn back to the Ark of the Covenant because Solomon has been touched by grace. Grace verse 6 going on, Solomon answers. He says, You have shown great loving kindness to your servant David my father, according as he walked before you in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart towards you. And you have reserved for him this great loving kindness that you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, yet I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or to come in. Your servant is in the midst of your people, which you have chosen, a great people that are too many to be numbered or counted. So, Solomon prays, he asks, give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, to discern between good and evil, for who is able to judge this great people of yours? Now now think about it. If you were asked by God... Or given the opportunity by God To ask for anything you wanted What would it be? God showed up and said Joe What do you want? Would it be grits? What would it be Joe? I don't know If he said If he said John What do you want? Would it be that new guitar in the window? If the Lord came to you Tonight in a dream And said I will give you Anything you ask for What would you ask for? now Solomon is amazing he's 20 years old at the time when he says I'm but a little child he feels like a little child he looks out, out over the sea of Israel the millions of Israelites and he realizes he's king and he doesn't have a clue what he's doing like often oftentimes many of us feel like we just don't want anybody to find out how little we really know about what we're doing in our lives You know, as long as they don't find out the truth about me that I'm a clueless wonder we're going to be okay and this is Solomon. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's, he's young. And so rather than ask for riches or power or prestige, he says, God, give me an understanding heart. Would you take a close look at that phrase, that statement? I'm not sure how it's translated in other translations, but the New American Standard Bible says, an understanding heart. And I really like the way that's worded. That word understanding there is a familiar Hebrew word to many of you. It's Shema. Shema. Does that ring a bell? Shema? The word Shema means here. It's the same word that is the name of the Jewish prayer, "Here, O Israel. The Lord your God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your mind, and with all your soul, and with all your strength. That is the Hebrew Shema. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 tells us that. And so what Solomon is praying here when he says, give me an understanding heart, is literally... Lord, give me a hearing heart. Give me a heart that hears. A heart that listens. A heart that is attuned to your voice. That's where wisdom comes from. Solomon recognizes this. I want to be able to hear you, Lord. I want my heart to be so in tune with you that when you speak, I hear and I can discern the way you do. I can hear good and evil as you speak it to me. Proverbs twenty-three, fifteen. Solomon says, My son... If your heart is wise, my own heart also will be glad. And my inmost being will rejoice when your lips speak what is right. Do not let your heart envy sinners, but live in the fear of the Lord always. He says, surely there is a future and your hope will not be cut off. Proverbs 23:19. he says, listen, my son, and be wise and direct your heart in the way. A hearing heart. That's a a great phrase Because isn't that what we ask for? Lord help us to hear you Jesus says he who has ears Let him hear God says in Revelation He who has ears Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches Give us hearing hearts Father Bring us all to that place Of hearing our shepherd's voice Of recognizing it And following as you speak to us Lord And a hearing heart gang It's a heart that has the gift of discernment one of the specific gifts that Paul outlines in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 several gifts listed there and one of those gifts is discernment Paul will write in Philippians 1.9 this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and discernment I think that's interesting that Paul doesn't divide those two out he doesn't divide out Bible study and listening to the Lord as two separate things he says they are one and the same The more you are in the Word, the more discerning you will be. And the more that you are in prayer, the more hungry you are going to be to be in the Word. The more you listen to the Lord speak to your heart, the more you are going to want to see what He's already written in His Word. The more you are in the Word, the more you are going to want to hear Him. And it works together. And a powerful, maturing Christian life is one who embraces the Lord in prayer and embraces the Word in study. I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and discernment. Discernment is very simple. It's knowing what is from God and what is not from God. In its most simple terms. Now I'll share with you all. I, I was talking just last night with, with Harlan about this at our shepherds meeting. We are spending some time praying and praying for each other. And I paired up throughout the house. And, and I was sitting there with Harlan and I said, You know, I think that the greatest weight that I carry as a pastor, and it's not one that I expected, and the greatest weight I carry is not the pains and problems and pitfalls and challenges of, of our fellowship. It's not hard for me when, when people call for counseling. It's not difficult when people are having certain struggles. That's okay. I mean, God has made my heart in such a way that, I don't know, either I'm hard-hearted or I don't care. Or I don't, <laughs> no, I do care. Very much. But it doesn't, it doesn't wear on me to hear struggles. You know what wears me down? There's nothing any of us can do about it but pray and be in the Word. What wears me down is the constant influence of fringe teachings in the church. Stuff that's not necessarily heretical, but it comes in and it takes us off in rabbit trail directions. It takes us away from the truth. That stuff wears me down. Because it's constant. I can't even tell you how often I'm discovering or hearing about... Whether it's it's from this fellowship or outside, constantly hearing about a new thing, this thing, that thing, the other thing. And I keep just wanting to stand up and say, can't we just be in the Word and walk with the Lord? Do we have to have the newest thing that's out there in the church today? And and I'll tell you, gang, it's it's just a, a thing that, well, it's what we should expect in these last days. We should expect heresy to be on the rise and for there to be pressure against just the pure and simple Word of God. We should expect that. The Bible says it's going to happen. But I'm amazed at this point in my life at how quickly we Christians jump at the first sign of a new teaching and get excited about the latest, greatest buzz. Paul said in Galatians 1, verse 6, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. And then he says And listen to this Which is really not another What does he mean by that? I'm amazed that you're chasing after A different gospel Which is really not another He says There are some who are disturbing you And want to distort The gospel of Christ That's the danger The danger is not A completely random Different teaching That someone brings up And it's so anti-biblical you look at it and go Whatever The danger is when someone Grabs some verses or a section or an idea and tries to back it up and distort what is the true and literal gospel. That's why I keep going back with that simple minded approach of just saying what does it say? Read what it says. He means what he says and he says what he means and it's that easy. Anything other than that can lead us into areas of distortion. Distortion. Sometimes, it's funny, I'll be in the middle of a conversation or a confrontation and it pops into my mind, Lord, help me discern your will right now, in this moment. Give me discernment, Father. Because I'm not sure. When we were riding in the cab with Charlie heading for Hebron, <laughs> Lord, give me discernment. <laughs> help me to have eyes to see where we're going and what's happening. And, and even in, in cases that are not extreme as that. I'm to be sitting in a conversation. I, I'll, I'll tell you about this. There, there's a... Uh, a friend that I was talking with about youth ministry and, and some possibilities there. And, and he started going off, and well, I won't get all into it tonight, but going off in the emerging church. And, and I just said, Lord, give me discernment for everything that I'm hearing here so that we can talk openly and honestly and truthfully about, about this movement. And by the way, discernment and popularity rarely go together. So if you're praying that the Lord gives you discernment to act on, Chances are good at some point you're going to speak out of that discernment and you're going to offend somebody. As Paul said in Galatians 1.10, Am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. See, see how... I mean, this, it's simple, but it's complex. It's complex in that we have to pray for discernment to know how to love people, but stand on the truth. How to show compassion and grace, but be unwielding with the truth of the Word of God. So, praying for discernment is one of the wisest things you can pray. It's what the wisest man, so called, who ever lived, prayed for more than anything else. Give me a hearing heart. Here's God's answer, verse 10. It was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. And God said to him, Because you have asked this thing, and have not asked for yourself long life, nor have asked riches for yourself, nor have you asked for the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself discernment, to understand justice, behold, I have done according to your words. Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart. This is already in place. He was already created this way. I've given you a wise and discerning heart, verse 12, so that there has been no one like you before you, nor shall one like you arise after you. Solomon, you are the apex of wisdom, man. This is what I've just done for you. Awesome. And so he says, I have also given you, verse 13, what you have not asked both riches and honor, so there will not be any among the kings like you in all your days. If you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will prolong your days. And then Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. He came to Jerusalem and stood before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Why is that? Because when the Lord shows grace and kindness... It leads us to repentance and it draws us back to the place where we are closest in his presence. So Solomon heads back to the ark and he offers burnt offerings and made peace offerings and made a feast for his servants. God was pleased with the heart of Solomon. He liked this prayer. Here's a guy who, rather than praying for stuff, is praying for smarts. He's praying for wisdom. But what's great about God's response Is again The graciousness of God I mean this is a God Who loves to give to his children God is by nature a giver So Solomon says Could you just help me be discerning And the Lord goes Cool You already have that But let's prolong your days And we're going to make you rich Beyond your wildest dreams I'm just going to flood you With goodness And I'm going to take care of you All this good Because that's the way God is He's not stingy he loves to give gifts. Matthew 7:11 says if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who's in heaven give what is good to those who ask him. And the parallel verse to that is Luke chapter 11 verse 13, where he doesn't say how much more will your father in heaven give what is good to those who ask him. He says how much more will your father in heaven give the holy spirit to those who ask him, which tells me something. It tells me that not only is God a giver of gifts, but God is also a giver of Himself. He loves to give gifts to His children, but He even loves more to give Himself to His children, which is why He offers us His Holy Spirit an amazing thing about God. Ephesians 1.18, Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. And this is such a cool thing about God, gracious, glorious provision. You say, help me to walk with more discernment. Help me to walk with more wisdom. Lord, give me the mind of Christ that Your Word promises. And His response is, I'll give you that and so much more. Because he is a gracious giver. How does Solomon respond? Might surprise you. He responds by recognizing Jesus. What do you mean? Well, in verse 15, it tells us when he comes to the ark and he offers offerings, he, he offered two types of offerings burnt offerings and peace offerings. Now, I don't have a lot of time to go into this tonight, but Leviticus chapters 1 through 5 detail the five different offerings. ...that God commanded for the people of Israel. Five types. Two of those are the burnt offerings and the peace offerings. And each one of the five offerings are cameos of Jesus. Pictures of Jesus Christ. But the two that seem most to point to Jesus are burnt offerings and peace offerings. Why is that? Well, the burnt offerings cameo the cross of Christ. Everything about the way the burnt offering is described back in Leviticus chapters 1 and 2... Everything about the description of the burnt offering is a description of the cross. If you want to go back and look at it, it's it's fascinating. It's a substitutionary sacrifice. It's a free will sacrifice. There's so much to it. But it's a sacrifice that pictures for us the cross. And there's teaching on that on the website. So you can go back and study Leviticus and, and listen through that. It's one of my favorite sections of scripture that we've done. Those first five chapters of Leviticus. Because each of the offerings picture Jesus. The burnt offering shows us the cross of Christ. The peace offering shows us the cause or the outcome of the cross of Christ. What's that? Fellowship with God. You see, the peace offering was cool. The people would bring their offering before the Lord and part of it would go to God and the other part of it would stay with the offerer, but they had to eat it right there. They weren't allowed to take it home and and go back to their tent or share it with their family. They had to eat it right there in the presence of the Lord. Why? Because God wanted a barbecue with His people. (laughs) Let's hang out and share together. Let's have a meal together. It's exactly what Jesus says in Revelation chapter 3. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Open it up, I'll come in. We will dine together. Every time you turn around, Jesus is having a meal with someone. You know, whether it's loaves and fishes feeding 5,000 or, or it's Jesus in John chapter 21, standing on the beach after the resurrection, as Peter and the apostles are out fishing again, and he kind of waves them in. Peter jumps out of the boat, fully clothed, and swims in, gets to the shore. I think about the same time that John and the other guys rowed up. You know, <laughs> kind of a forest Gump thing. He looks over, "That's my boat," you know, and gets off. And they come up and sit down, and Jesus says, "Hey, let's have breakfast together." Kind of a messianic breakfast, you know, and they share it together. Burn offerings and peace offerings now one example of how wise and discerning Solomon truly was after giving these offerings we have an example very famous story you'll recognize it. verse 16 then two women who were harlots came to the king and stood before him <laughs> it's interesting how the Bible doesn't miss anything you know that's probably something I just would have erased out of there a couple of ladies came and talked to him you know Bible tells us exactly what's going on two harlots came to the king and they stood before him and one woman verse 17 said oh my Lord this woman and I live in the same house and I gave birth to a child while she was in the house and it happened on the third day after I gave birth that this woman also gave birth to a child and we were together There was no stranger with us in the house, only the two of us in the house. This woman's son died in the night because she lay on it. So she arose in the middle of the night and took my son from beside me while your maidservant slept, and laid him in her bosom, and laid her dead son in my bosom. And when I arose in the morning to nurse my son, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him carefully in the morning, behold, he was not my son whom I had borne. And the other woman said, No, for the living one is my son, and the dead one is your son. But the first woman said no the dead one is your son and the living one is my son and thus they spoke before the king which indicates they go on for quite a while about this no the dead son is your son and the living son son." and they are arguing back and forth but I can just see Solomon going discernment discernment please Lord give me discernment and then the king said in verse 23 the one says this is my son who is living And your son is the dead one. And the other says, no, for your son is the dead one, and my son is the living one. He's clarifying. let me make sure I understand the two of you here. And in verse 24, the king said, get me a sword. What? Yeah, give me a sword. So they brought a sword before the king. And the king said, divide the living child in two. Give half to the one and half to the other. And they must have thought he was nuts. That is not going to work. We're going to end up with two dead kids. Then the woman whose child was the living one spoke to the king, for she was deeply stirred over her son and said, Oh, my Lord, no, give give her the living child. By no means kill him. But the other said, He shall divide, and be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. And then the king said, Give the first woman the living child, and by no means kill him. She is his mother. When all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had handed down, they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. Famous, famous story, told and retold thousands upon thousands of times since it actually happened 2,900 years ago. There's even in you know, a Seinfeld episode. Did you know that? They had the characters of, of Elaine and Kramer are fighting over this pink bicycle, and they both won and so the other character Newman makes a decision and says cut the bicycle in half and give one to the one and one to the other and and Kramer says no 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 she can have the bicycle and Elaine goes yeah cut it cut it in half and he says give the bicycle to Kramer it's obviously rightfully his you know it's hilarious this story has been told and retold again and again and again even to the point that it found its way into American popular culture which always fascinates me when the Bible does it by the way it's all over the place you know that Biblical stories and parables and scriptures and verses are everywhere in our culture and people don't even know it. And so this story is right here. What does it tell us? The message is clear. The message is clear of this story of wisdom. It is the sword that divides. The sword divides. You don't know what to do. You've got a difficult decision. Something where you're trying to figure out how you're supposed to respond and Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says the word of God is living and active sharper than any two edged sword it's piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart now I thought about that verse today joints and marrow the dividing of joints and marrow joints and marrow don't bump up against each other think about that you'd think if it was going to be be joints and I don't know what bumps up against tendons you know the division of joints and tendons would make better sense but the Bible says it's for the division of joints and marrow right before it and listen to this this is fascinating it it says the division of soul which is the soul man the, the, the flesh our humanity our human intellect all that and spirit which is who we really are the deeper part of who we are joints are more on the outside the marrow is deep on the inside Woost, in his word studies of the New Testament, explains it this way. He says that the Hebrew writer paints a penetrating picture. In fact, the word that we see translated division is probably best translated penetration. That the word is living and active, is sharper than any two-edged sword, and penetrates as far as the division of soul. In other words, goes through soul to get to spirit in the same way that a sword a sharp double edged sword would go through joints and actually get to the marrow itself what does that mean? it means that the word is so effective that it gets right into the heart of the matter it divides out see our motives are mixed up gang we can come to God and in the same prayer be incredibly altruistic and be incredibly selfish almost at the same time and not even know we're doing it and I don't know about you, but I can't tell you how often I'm in the Word reading and studying and praying through it and suddenly I am aware of something in my life I had no idea about, but the Word divides it out and brings it to light. And that's the power of it. It's able to cut through the outer layers of our faulty human motives and get to the heart of the matter. You want to be wise and discerning before in the Lord? You want to think with the mind of Christ? You want a heart that hears and understands? The sword divides. The sword divides. Penetrates. Again, it's important to pray for wisdom. It's equally important and vital to search it out by taking a firm hold of the sword, which is the word of God. Now, in chapter four, in chapter four, we we get a detail of the pinnacle of Israel's glory. And the first nineteen verses, we'll move through quickly here. It's a listing of Solomon's cabinet and several names. King Solomon was king over all Israel. Verse one. And these were his officials: Azariah, the son of Zadok, the the priest, and Elihoreph. Eli- Elisha- and Ahijah, the sons of Shishah, were secretaries. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was the recorder. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the army. And Zadok and Abiathar were the priests. And Azariah, the son of Nathan, was over the deputies. And Zebud the son of Nathan, a priest, was the king's friend. And Ahishar was over the household. And Adoniram, the son of Abda, was over the men subject to forced labor. Solomon had 12 deputies over all Israel who provided for the king and his household each man had to provide for a month in the year by the way that's how Solomon taxed the people 12 deputies one was from each tribe each tribe was responsible to provide the king's provisions in his household one month out of the year and that's how they did it verse 8 these are their names Ben-Hur about whom they made a great movie in the hill country of Ephraim Ben, if you, have you ever seen Ben-Hur? Does anybody even know what I'm talking about here? The old Charlton Heston movie? If you haven't seen it, rent it. It's awesome. It's one of my favorite epic movies. So Ben-Hur in the hill country of Ephraim, Ben-Dekker in Makaz, and Sheolabim, and Beth Shemesh, and Elan-Beth-Hanan, and Beth Hased and Aruboth. Soka was his, and all the land of Hefer, and Ben-Abinadab, and all the height of Dor, Tabeath the daughter of Solomon, was his wife. Beana the son of Ahilud, and Teonic, and Megiddo in Teonic and Megiddo and all bet which is beside Zarephan below Jezreel from Betshan to to and mehola as far as the other side of Jachmim you know exactly where that is on the map I'm sure and then Ben-Geber in Ramoth gilead the sons of Jair the son of Manasseh which are in Gilead were his the region of Argab, which is Bashan, and sixty great cities with walls and bronze bars were his. Ahinadab, the son of Edo in Mahanaim, and Ahimehaz in Naftali, he also married Basemath, the daughter of Solomon, who I think was a teacher of fundamental math, Basemath was what he taught. I, that, by the way, was the math that I took in college. We <laughs> called it bonehead algebra, and we was the basic math because that just was not my thing, Anything over about 10 is difficult for me to count. So Basemath, base map, the daughter of Solomon, Beana, the son of Hushai in Asher, and Be'eloth. And by the way, one other funny thing about the math situation. I've got two kids, Corey and Hannah, who are brilliant when it comes to math. And they just laugh at Cheryl and I all the time because we don't have a clue. Hayden comes up with elementary school math. Dad, can you show me how to do it? like, go to Corey. <laughs> See your brother. He's busy. Go talk to Hannah. You know, And then go to Granny because you know, that's the best we can do. So Beanna, the son of Bushi, and Asher, and the Elah, so don't come and ask me math questions. Verse 17, Jehoshaphat, the son of Parua, and Issachar, Shimei, the son of Elah, in ben and Keber, the son of Uri, in the land of Gilead, the country of Sihon, king of the Amorites, and of Og, king of Bashan, and he was the only deputy who was in the land. Two quick things to note about this listing of people. Number one, there's wisdom in the counsel of many. Solomon realized when he was given this great wisdom by the Lord that to rule this people he needed help, and so he got it, and he surrounded himself with wise and intelligent and sharp people. He got himself, you know, covered with that, and it's kind of, it's kind of like my family. And I was kidding about the math thing, but there's wisdom in the counsel of many. Between all of us, we can take care of the different needs in the household. In this fellowship, it's the same thing. That this fellowship. Grows and does what God called it to do not because Pastor Rick knows what he's doing not because Tom as an elder knows what he's doing but because the body is all involved because the body is all connected because the body is in ministry one with another we were praying and talking more about small groups last night and how critical it is that we get to that place where we are all connected in ministry to each other the body being the body there is wisdom in the counsel of many Proverbs 15.22 Solomon would later write without consultation plans are frustrated but with many counselors they succeed so it's wise to be surrounded by wise people and that's what Solomon does second thing just to notice I like this there's wisdom in the counsel of friends verse 5 just points out it says Zabud the son of Nathan a priest was the king's friend Solomon tells us about Zabud. He was Solomon's friend. He was his buddy. They hung out together. Solomon, the king of Israel, like anybody else, just needed a friend. And we all do. So there's wisdom in both these things. Now, going on, interesting. Verse 20 says, Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. They were eating and drinking and rejoicing. That's what I said before. They were having a party. This was this was great Israel had never known such peace such prosperity and such property in all their days together the economy was flourishing they had peace on every side no presidential candidate could have run on a platform of change in Israel in those days When not have worked no one would want anything to change because it was perfect it was just great and in this by the way we get a glimpse of the millennial kingdom a picture of a little indication of what it's going to be like now it will be far better than it was here but we we see this as we look through and realize wow there was a day in the history of Israel this torn apart uh, complex messed up situation today anything but peaceful in the Middle East right now but there was a day in Israel man it was smooth sailing and the people were eating drinking and rejoicing But don't forget, the peace that Solomon and the people enjoyed followed the warring life of David. It followed the fight of David. And I've said this recently, peace is always preceded by struggle. Peace comes after war and battle and difficulty. And we don't have peace with God simply because he's a beneficent ruler who looks down on his creation and says, Ah, they're pretty good people, I'll give them peace. We have, Listen, we have peace with God because Jesus fought the ultimate battle at Calvary. That's why we have peace. We have peace with God because the nails went through His hands. Because He bled out. Because He was willing to fight to the death. That's why we have peace. Now check this out. We see not only peace and prosperity, but the extent of the territory of Israel under the rule of Solomon. And it's impressive. Verse 21. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. If you have a Bible map in your Bible, you might want to while I'm reading this, flip back and just look at the territory of Solomon and how much room there was there. He said, it says in verse 22 that Solomon's provision, <laughs> Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour. One day, that's 1,740 gallons of flour a day for the provision of Solomon and all the people living in his palace says sixty cores of meal. That's three thousand four hundred and eighty gallons of meal were cooked up in a day for Solomon. Ten fat oxen, twenty pasture fed oxen, a hundred sheep besides deer, gazelles, robots, and fattened fowl, every single day this was on the menu. I mean they were they were plenteous. They had plenty of land, they had plenty of food and provision. Verse 24 said he had dominion over everything west of the river from Chipsha even to Gaza over all the kings west of the river and he had peace on all sides around him. Note this the river is the Euphrates River. In Iraq today that's how far to the east the kingdom of Solomon spread and it spread then all the way to the west of the Mediterranean and then all the way down to the border of Egypt. It was a huge amount of land. We know it's the Euphrates River there, by the way, because it says so in 2 Chronicles 9.26. It's illuminated for us. So in other words, Israel's territory under the rule of Solomon included modern-day Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, Iran, and Iraq. And pushed right up against the border of Egypt. It was 30,000 square miles. Even so, you Bible students know that was only one-tenth of what the Lord had promised. Because God promised Abraham 300,000 square miles. So at the height of Solomon's glory, they still only had... 10% of the promise. Gang, in the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, Revelation chapter 20, describing it, it provides for the full and complete realization of the property rights of Israel. And it will extend the full 300,000 square miles. Verse 25 going on says, Judah and Israel lived in safety. Every man under his vine and his fig tree, from Dan even to Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. And that verse is why I tell you, this kingdom foreshadows the coming millennial kingdom. Because the verse tells us that every man was under his vine and his own fig tree. Jeremiah 23 verse 6 says, In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. Micah 4:4 says, Each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree. See that's the picture in Israel of perfect peace. When you get your own vine and you get your own fig tree. Then you know you've arrived says no one will make them afraid for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Zechariah 3.10 says in that day declares the Lord of hosts. Every one of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and under his fig tree. There's going to be room enough, fruit enough, shade enough for everybody. Now verse 26 going on says Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots. And 12,000 horsemen. There were horses all over the place in Solomon's kingdom and stalls everywhere. And in excavations in Israel today, they have run across just thousands upon thousands of horse stalls that were built by Solomon. In the city of Megiddo, there on the hillside looking down over the valley of Megiddo, the valley of Armageddon. In that city of Megiddo, that was a horse city for Solomon in his day and there were stalls and you can see them we saw them on our last tour when you're there at Megiddo you can look down and see the stalls the horse stalls of Solomon that are left from his day that he built all over the land, absolutely fantastic. Forty thousand stalls of horses for his chariots. Twelve thousand horses all over the country. Verse twenty-seven says those deputies provided for King Solomon, and all who came to King Solomon's table each in his month, they left nothing lacking. So there was always plenty of food. Verse twenty-eight, they also brought barley and straw for the horses and swift steeds to the place where it should be, each according to his charge. Now God gave, note that, God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment and breadth of mind like the sand that is on the seashore. In other words, those are his thoughts. The thoughts of Solomon were as vast as the sand on the seashore. This guy was beyond brilliant. His mind... I can't even imagine it ever stopping thinking. 24 7. He's got thoughts and he's studying and he's, he's got a massive, massive intellect. We're told that his wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the East and all the wisdom of Egypt. You hear about the, the wisdom of China. You know, when we talk about uh, Jesus' birth, the wise men who came from the East, there's something about the East and a great wisdom there. And the Bible tells us Solomon, man, he, he shamed them. He was so brilliant. The wisest people from the east didn't compare to Solomon. Verse 31 says he was wiser than all men, and then it names four guys who apparently were pretty brilliant themselves: Ethan the Ezraite, Heman, Talco, and Darda, the sons of Mahol. And his fame was known in all the surrounding nations. By the way, to a point, Ethan and Heman were temple musicians assigned by David. We know this. Ethan wrote Psalm 89, and yet Solomon, verse 32 spoke 3,000 proverbs we only have a few hundred but he spoke 3,000 and he wrote 1,005 songs in his lifetime he spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon even to the hyssop that grows on the wall He spoke also of animals and birds and creeping things and fish. Men came from all peoples to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all the kings of the earth who had heard his wisdom. Solomon was a horseman. He was an intellectual. Some say he's the first real scientist. Because he studied like nobody studied before him. Everything from plants to animals to fish to birds. He's a popular songwriter. He was a poet. He was a sage. Not to mention a lecturer extraordinaire. I mean, people came from everywhere just to sit and listen to Solomon expound his intellect. And they were blown away. And all of this comes as an overflow of blessing from God the Lord. Keep your finger here and go back to Deuteronomy 17. Deuteronomy 17 and verse 14. The Lord says When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you and you possess it and live in it and you say I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses one from among your countrymen you shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not over your country or who is not your countrymen. Moreover, listen to this he shall not multiply horses for himself. Oops. Nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, which you'll find out, not tonight, but in a later study, Solomon does that. Oops. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. He shall not multiply wives for himself. Oops. (laughs) Or else his heart will turn away. Nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. Oops. And it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of a Levitical priest something Solomon never did. I read that to you for this reason. On every count Solomon knowingly violates God's laws for the kings. Everyone. He amasses tremendous numbers of horses for himself and God said don't do it. Why why would God care how many horses Solomon had? Because horses were a sign of strength and pride. And God said, I don't want your pride to be in your army. I don't want your pride to be in your possessions, in the animals that you own. I want your pride to be in me. I want your love to be in me. I want your focus to be on me. But, But hey, life is good for Solomon. I mean it's peaceful and prosperous and there's property and plenty for all but all the while remember where we started the thing taking root was complacency spiritual complacency and it's hard to see because Solomon was so busy in all of his exploits I want to read one more thing here and finish out chapter 5 It'll just take us a second it's a quick chapter so verse 1 of chapter 5 goes on and says hiring the king of Tyre sent all of his servants To Solomon, And when they heard that they had anointed him king in the place of his father, uh, he sent his servants, for Hiram had always been a friend of David. Then Solomon sent word to Hiram, saying, You know that David, my father, was unable to build a house for the name of the Lord his God, because of the wars which surrounded him, until the Lord put them under the shoes of his feet. But now, the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor misfortune. Behold, I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. As the Lord spoke to David my father, saying, Your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, he will build the house for my name. Now therefore command that they cut for me cedars from Lebanon, and my servants will be with your servants. And I will give you wages for your servants, according to all that you say. For you know that there is no one among us who knows how to cut timber like the Zidonians. He wants the cedars of Lebanon. He's going to King and uh, king of Tyre, to get them. The cedars of Lebanon, gang, were massive hardwood trees. Very few are even in existence today. But they were known to withstand decay and to repel insects and to be just a great hardwood. And Psalm 29, verse 4 tells us, The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. And when the psalmist writes that, he's saying, you have no idea how powerful the voice of the Lord is. That he can even speak a word. And those massive, and we're talking like, you think the redwoods are big. We're talking massive trees. And they would just shatter at the sound of the voice of God. And so that's what that psalm implies when it talks about the cedars of Lebanon, and the scriptures refer to those cedars quite often. But he says, I want you to cut that timber, and then in verse seven it says, When Hiram heard the words of Solomon, he rejoiced greatly. He said, Blessed be the Lord today, who has given to David a wise son over his this great people. Well, of course Hiram would think that. He's getting free, you know, he's getting labor for he's actually Getting to send some of his people from outside of Israel into to work. You know, it's kind of a NAFTA, really, agreement that they've got going on here. And he says that Hiram sent word to him and said, I have heard the message which you sent me. I will do what you desire concerning the cedar and the cypress timber. Verse 9, he says, My servants will bring them down from Lebanon to the sea, and I will make them into rafts to go by the sea to the place where you direct me. And I will have them broken up there, and you shall carry them away, and then you shall accomplish my desire by giving food to my household. So Hiram gave Solomon as much as he desired of the timber and of the cedar and the cypress timber. Solomon gave Hiram 20,000 cores of wheat as food for his household. That's 1,160,000 gallons of wheat. And 20 cores, that's 1,160 gallons of beaten oil. And thus Solomon would give Hiram year by year. And the Lord gave wisdom to Solomon just as he promised him. And there was peace between Hiram and Solomon. And the two of them, they made for themselves a covenant. Now, it's amazing to think about, but they cut down these massive trees, these cedars, and and the cypress. And they transported it a great quantity across land to boats in the Mediterranean. They shipped it down from Tyre, which is north of Israel, Lebanon today, They shipped it down along the sea coast, down to Joppa, which is right by or part of Tel Aviv in Israel today. And from there, they somehow moved all of that massive wood, they moved it from Joppa to Jerusalem, which was from sea level to 2,600 feet above sea level. And this was 2,900 years ago, gang. They were doing things then that we can't do now. I shared that with the, the building of the stones. And we'll see that on Sunday morning. The, the placement of the stones at the base, at the foundation of the temple. We couldn't do it. There are stones that are too big to move. We don't have the technology for it. They did in Solomon's day. These were an amazing people. And Solomon was an amazing king. It would have taken a massive amount of manpower, which we're told about in verse 13. King Solomon levied forced laborers from all Israel. And the forced laborers numbered 30,000 men. This was a draft okay they, they didn't have a choice they were just drafted into labor he sent them to Lebanon 10,000 a month in relays they were in Lebanon a month and then two months at home it's not a bad deal and Adoniram was over the forced laborers now Solomon had 70,000 transporters and 80,000 hewers of stone in the mountains the guys who would work in the quarries Besides Solomon's 3,300 chief deputies Who were over the project And who ruled over the people Who were doing the work Then the king commanded And they quarried great stones Costly stones To lay the foundation of the, of the house With cut stones And so Solomon's builders And Hiram's builders And the Gebelites You guys remember the Gebelites? I don't either I have no idea who they are The Gebelites cut them And prepared the timbers And the stones To build the house It was an amazing undertaking that we're going to study further in chapter 6 on Sunday. But a note on the forced labor again. These people were, they were drafted. They were all paid. It wasn't slavery, but they were drafted into service. And even in Israel today, it's interesting to note, every man and woman upon reaching the age of 18 and graduating from the equivalent of high school, every single citizen of Israel goes immediately into military service for two years. Following that, if they don't stay in military service... They continue to serve two weeks to a month out of every year for the rest of their lives. That's how they do it in Israel. And there's no burning draft cards, and there's no fighting about it, and there's no whining about it, and there's no saying, to bring our boys home, you know. We have an all-volunteer army. Everybody in Israel fights in their military. Everybody serves, which I think is not a bad way to do it. Our bus driver in Israel last, last year, Yuda was a tank driver in the 2006-Lebanon war. It's kind of nice to have a bus driver who knows how to drive a tank. I, I, don't, I felt secure anyway. But the downside of this whole effort is this. Solomon got all the people busy and involved and ultimately overextended in his projects, placing a heavy burden on them. In fact, over in 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 3, after Solomon's death, the people come to Rehoboam and just listen to what they say they sent and called him and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam saying your father made our yoke hard now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke which he put on us and we will serve you why burden the people Solomon I mean as we started out tonight they were eating and drinking and rejoicing it was a great time it was relaxing it was peaceful why, why do all this stuff why all of this busyness why push in times of peace and that's the question I want us to end on tonight you see from architecture to science to horses to riding to speaking engagements not to forget as we'll see wine, women and song Solomon did it all and he was by reading his life one of the busiest guys I've ever seen I look at the life of Solomon and I wonder, did, did Shlomo ever lie down? Did he ever stop and get some rest? When did he take a break? He was so constant and busy. His name means peace, but peace seems to elude Solomon. Verse 4 of chapter 5, he even says, The Lord my God has given me rest, but, but he never rests. He is constantly busy. I want to finish by reading you something out of Ecclesiastes that Solomon wrote in his old age. In chapter 1 of the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon said, I the preacher have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. And I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done ever under heaven. And it's a grievous task which God has given the sons of men to be afflicted with. What's a grievous task? Study. Using our minds. Using our intellect. Solomon would say, yeah, a mind is a terrible thing to waste, but it's exhausting. (laughs) He says, I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun. And behold, it's all vanity and striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. And I set my mind to no wisdom, and to no madness, and to no folly, and I realized this also is striving after the wind. Why is that? Because I can't get my fingers around it. Because in much wisdom there is much grief and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain and as that great theologian once said I can't get no satisfaction. (laughs) I mean this is the whole life of Solomon. He could not find satisfaction. Ecclesiastes chapter 2 goes on and lists out all of the things that Solomon did in his life. What he pursued, what he tried out. He said, hey, I've got wisdom. I might as well try this out and see what the result is. See if it satisfies. See if it works for me. And he ends up by saying it's all vanity, striving after wind, nothing can satisfy. Now, what amazes me is how we have so much trouble learning from what Solomon learned almost 3,000 years ago. Let me ask you, if, if someone were given the unlimited resources to seek out every source of possible of satisfaction under the sun, and that person ends up concluding that aside from the Lord, we can't have any satisfaction, wouldn't you think that would impact our lives? Wouldn't you think just by looking at a person like that, we would step back and go, well, maybe you know, amassing riches really isn't what it's all about maybe pleasure really doesn't satisfy maybe mounds and mounds of learning really isn't the deal you'd think we would learn this from Solomon but people say oh no I, I was just him that wouldn't be the same with me if I won the lottery <laughs> I could handle it I'd be I wouldn't be like those people whose lives go you know fall apart because I'm not that way you see I, I can handle all these things why? do we strive we haven't learned what Solomon learned Solomon the man whose life was peace was anything but peaceful his name was peace he was anything but peaceful he was constant in striving And once he had enough horses He was on to the next thing Studying the trees And once he understood the trees He's on to studying the birds And then the animals And then he's thinking about something else And you just get this picture Of an erratic guy Who cannot stop himself from thinking Up in the middle of the night Thinking about more stuff And writing down a new song And coming up with a new proverb And oh this is good This will teach the young man I can write that And just going and going and going As if he was manic in his life And he accomplished so much but he never seems to be at peace. Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6 verse 6, Godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. He says even people who are pursuing godliness, if you're not content in your life, even that godliness is going to elude you. Even that, you're going to have trouble getting your fingers around you. Paul says we brought nothing into the world we can't take anything out of it either if we have food and covering with these we shall be content Solomon had so much given to him but he was never content he had peace but he wasn't at peace he had prosperity but it was never enough he had provision only to wake up hungry for more. He had property, but it became a monotony. And you might say, but wait a minute, all of these things were gifts from God. And you'd be right. God gave all of this to Solomon. God poured it out. God gifted Solomon like no one before him or possibly after. Well, remember... It's not the chronology of history that concerns us. It's the theology of history. And what I believe the Lord would have us learn from the Solomon story is very simply this. There is no satisfaction even in the gifts of God without the gift of God. There's no satisfaction in all the things that God can give us and bless us with without the gift of God Himself. You know what's going to make the Millennial Kingdom different than the Solomonic Kingdom? What's going to make it greater and more perfect? The difference will be not the coming peace, not the coming prosperity, not even the coming property of Israel. What's going to make the difference is the coming person of Jesus Christ. Jesus will be there. And the Lord says in Jeremiah 31, 34, They will not teach again, each man his neighbor, each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, they will all know me. They will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. God is a giver, but not just of stuff. Because all that God gives without God himself, even that won't satisfy as we see with Solomon. John three sixteen says, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. And 1,000 years prior to the experimentation of Solomon, 1,000 years before he tried all these different things, the Lord spoke these illuminating words to His forefather Abraham. In Genesis 15, 1, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield, and I am thy exceeding great reward it's not what you're going to get from me it's me father I pray that you will help me to learn from Solomon and that you will remove from my mind thoughts of prosperity or peace or property or provision I pray with each of us father that we will learn from this man who tried everything And miss you. And help us, Father, to pursue Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. May our hearts be wrapped up in wanting you. And in receiving, Father, the gift of Jesus Christ into our lives. May we find our satisfaction in you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.